The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Sarah Turner, author of The Unmumsy Mum, The Hilarious Highs and Emotional Lows of Motherhood. She's also the creator of the very popular blog, The Unmumsy Mum. Uh, and her blog offers an uncensored account of her early years of parenting, as does the book. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. So the unmumsy mum, who is the, you are, you're the unmumsy mum, I guess. Uh, so what does that mean? What's an unmumsy mum? You know, that's a very good question. And um, I think for me, it was, it was kind of a mindset that I had um, at the time when I became a parent for, for the first time and you're thrown into this whole new world that feels a bit like a, a hurricane has, has hit you. Um, and um, here, here in the UK, um, where I am, um, mumsy is kind of goes hand in hand with somebody that you think kind of has everything together. You know, they're doing a good job. They're um, they're kind of a typical a typical mum or, or mom. They have um, you know they don't forget stuff. They know what they're doing. They kind of seem to have everything under control. And for me, um, that was kind of the aspiration, what I wanted to be like. I would have loved to have been mumsy and for other people to have thought, wow, she, she is really mumsy. Um, however, I felt decidedly unmumsy in comparison. So that was kind of where the name from the blog came from, really. It was more about my state of mind than anything else. And Sarah, I don't think there, I don't really know. I mean, you're in the UK, I'm in the US. I really don't know. And I've had a lot of experience. I have three boys and a grandson. So I don't know if I've actually met a mumsy. It's really most women that I know are unmumsy. So that's why it's, you know, you know, I was reading your blog, obviously, and reading your book. And boy, all of that stuff that you talk about in the book sort of just it resonated that is so true and you need somebody else to say it because you kind of feel I think when you first have your first baby is like I'm not do what's wrong with me I mean I'm supposed to be this kind of perfect mom and you know I love this baby but all the other stuff gets in the way and that's what you really talk about sort of uncensored mothering I guess is what I'd call it yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're um, you're absolutely right there in that I've learned that actually um, sometimes appearances can be very deceptive. So a lot of the parents that I kind of perceived to have everything together and, and, and knew what they were doing, a lot of that stemmed from just the stuff that I'd read online. Um, and that tended to be the kind of more, the blogs that were more on the, say, glossy side of things, where it was presenting kind of the best bits of the day, almost like the, the showreel of, of parenting best bits, you know? all the nice photos and the, and the nice moments and everything was kind of hashtag blessed at the end of it. And, um, and I sort of found, found myself thinking, I have moments like that, but I also have moments where I just don't know what I'm doing. Um, 
So, yeah, my, my vow at the very beginning was to kind of document um, motherhood exactly as I was finding it, which wasn't quite how I, I thought I'd, you know, how I thought I would find it, I think. It was a lot harder. Well, you connected with a lot of women because you've got millions of, of, uh, of, of women who are, uh, you know, well, who hopefully read the book, but also tune into your blog or, or, uh, so you really hit on something. Let's talk about some of this stuff. Okay. Cause you have this beautiful little baby and your, uh, baby boy and, uh, it's supposed to be perfect. And, you know, you go online and you look on people's Facebook pages, like you said, and everybody's smiling in the family and everything's perfect. And it makes you feel like, what am I doing wrong? Um, and so yeah. what are some of the issues? Let's talk about those uh, so that, in, that you talk about in the book and, and also that you blog about. Yeah, so I think for me, it's just um, it's how you feel, um, kind of all the unexpected emotions that go with becoming a, a, a parent for the first time. So I think it was no great surprise to me that I was tired because sleep deprivation is kind of the one thing that everybody te- you know tells you about. You will be tired. You will struggle to get, you know, um, extended periods of sleeping, but nobody kind of said to me, well, actually, that affects everything else. So all of a sudden, you know, you're finding that you might cry at, at you know, things that would never have made you cry before, or that you tried to put the um, the cereal box in the fridge and, and, you know, and the milk in the cupboard. Or um, I can remember um, a day when I was desperately searching for my mobile phone. I couldn't find it. I was getting myself all flustered. And while I was searching for my mobile phone, I was actually on the phone. So I was spending kind of half an hour panicking about the fact that I'd lost my phone while having a phone conversation. And I felt like I was losing my mind a lot of the time, you know, sort of. Um, it's just such a big adjustment becoming a parent. So I think that was the thing is that is that um, I hadn't had this anticipation that it would make me question kind of who am I now? You know, I felt like I'd lost my sense of... Um, identity a little bit which uh, yeah I definitely hadn't prepared for that well I think the you mentioned I mean sleep deprivation that that's probably the number one thing and you're right people tell you oh you're going to be tired but you've never really experienced this kind of tired and and I think this also when you talk about moms first-time moms being tired it's like when you're tired before you have kids you only sort of have yourself to deal with but not only are you tired but you have the responsibility of another human being so you can't just take a nap or you just can't take time out when you feel like taking time out it has nothing to do exactly. with when you, yeah uh exactly and that's you, that you kind of you you lose the um in a good you know it's not necessarily always a bad thing but you you lose that ability to be selfish and, and look after as you say like your own needs first because you know i can remember um three or four months after my first son henry was born and i was struck with a really really bad um sickness bug i was really really quite poorly and nothing kind of prepares you for um, being ill, but still having those, you know, parental responsibilities. I was, I was um, breastfeeding Henry at the time, so it wasn't as if I could, you know, pass him over to somebody else to look after him for a few days. It was I needed to feed him every few hours, and he needed a bath, and he needed this, that, and the other. In between me kind of having to go to the bathroom to be sick, um, and just that realization of, oh, my goodness, you know, there's, 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 there's always now going to be somebody whose needs are a lot more important than mine and um, in many ways I like that it's quite humbling but there are moments like you say when you're absolutely sleep deprived or uh, or poorly feeling not very well when yeah that that's just hard yeah hard work it's very hard work and I'm I, I remember when I had my third 
and I think everybody was sick with whatever, some kind of a virus, and I was breastfeeding the third one. I, I literally crawled into the baby's room and got him in the... I, I couldn't even walk. I'm crawling in so that I can breastfeed him. And I thought this is... I was so exhausted and so sick. But you still have to... I mean, now it's funny, but it wasn't funny at the time. Um, yeah. So, I mean, all of those kinds of things. But uh, so, so what about... Okay, sleep deprivation, that's a big one. Yeah. Sleep deprivation is a big one. Um, and, and also all of the kind of... Um, the, the top tips and best practices and things that people tell you that you should and shouldn't be doing. Um, and then all of these kind of opinions, you know, they seem to contradict one another. So I can remember going to the baby group and being told, you know, you need to, if, if, if your baby's not getting into a sleep routine by now, you need to let him cry it out. And then I went to another baby group um, a couple of days later and they told you that under no circumstances should you let them cry it out. If they cry, you need to hold them and, and comfort them. And that's what you're, that's what you're there for. And I kind of remember thinking, well, which is it? You know, do I, this, this is the point in which I have to make a decision, I guess, on, on what, what works for me and my baby. But there's, there's, no, there's no handbook, is there? Nobody presents you with, you know, you, get, you, get a car, you buy a new car and you get a, a handbook or a manual that says, you know, this, this is what to do if, if, if this isn't working or if, or, if, or if this happens. But, you know, with children, there are no engine management or warning lights. You just have to kind of go by your gut instinct and, and hope for the best. So, um, yeah, conflicting advice from other people I've found uh, quite testing at times, I think. So one size doesn't fit all. And also when you say this conflicting information uh, and you get, yeah, and, and every, and I think that when you get that information from other moms, they are other moms, they are really quite adamant about this is the way you should do it. it it's not, it's sort of like, so it really kind of, now what do I do? I mean, it's it's they're they're pretty sure that this is the right way usually, and it's and you as you say you get two opposite ways of doing things. So how did you come to the let's say with your first? How did you come to the decision? Like one says, look, you know, let them cry it out uh, and they'll fall asleep, and and another group says, well, no, you know, you just pick them up and hold them, and eventually uh, they will fall asleep when they're ready on their own time to sleep through the night. So how did you come to the decision? Well, I got to make my own decision um, and feel comfortable with it. I think I, um, I tried to gather as much information as possible, kind of thinking, you know, knowledge is power. I'll hear what everybody has to say. And then um, I, I realized early on that I, I couldn't allow myself to be, um, you know, we're kind of consumed by guilt of parents a lot, I think. And I, I thought I can't be guilty if I'm doing something that somebody else perceives to be not the correct thing to do if, it, if it's working for us. So it was trial and error a lot of the time. I remember we, we tried the kind of cry it out method and I, I, I struggled with that. I, I, found that um, I found that it upset me. And therefore, um, I kind of came to the conclusion, well, if something's going to upset me and it doesn't feel right, maybe we'll, maybe we'll try something else. Um, and so, yeah, we, we then opted for a slightly, um, slightly kind of um, gentler approach. And, and in, in, in time, um, he found his own sleep routine. And then, of course, you have another one. And they're completely different. So, um, you know, but like you said, one size certainly doesn't fit all because you can be the, have the same, the same household, the same two parents, the same values and beliefs and, and, uh, and, and ways of, of trying to bring that child up the best you can. But two, two siblings in the same household can be completely different as babies and toddlers. So um, you, you, you kind of, I found with my second, I was almost back to square one because what had worked for, for the first didn't, didn't work with him. Um, so yeah, all, I, I, even then I felt like I wasn't, 
necessarily qualified as a parent, but you come to realise that I think everybody's just kind of winging it and um, and doing and doing their best, playing it by ear, really. But I think what you said is really important. Like it has to feel comfortable to you as a mom, and if it doesn't, then yeah. you really shouldn't be doing it. No matter what your girlfriend says or somebody that you know you're an expert that you read about or whatever, you know, it's really something that you have to feel comfortable with. And I think that's. I, I like to emphasize that because that's really important. I think one of the things in, um, that, you, that, that you talk about, I mean, your own mother died when you were a teenager. So uh, in terms of turning to your mom or turning to your mom and asking her, like, what did you do or how did you take care of me? Or you didn't have that, 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 that support or that advantage. So um, that, as I understand it, made it a little bit more difficult for you in terms of parenting, especially with your first I think I think it did, yeah. I think it's natural, um, you know, certainly from uh, friends and, and other family members um, that I'm, I'm around that, you know, they've sort of said that, you know, when, when they've become a mum themselves for the first time, that the person that they naturally want to pick up the phone to or, or get in the car and drive around for, a, you know, a cup of coffee and a, a shoulder to cry on, um, you know, tends to be your own mother. So, um, I um, I lost my mum uh, to cancer when I was 15, so um, she you know she never got to see me and my sister have children, and I think um, I think that is in part why I spent so much time looking for help and advice online because I mean I had girlfriends, but I was one of the first of my friends to, to have a baby, um, and you soon realise that your routine falls out of step with your child-free friends and you can't just message them at three in the morning and say I'm, I'm really struggling with this what do you think I what do you think I should do um and that's probably why I started looking online for support and when I didn't really find anything that kind of reassured me I thought well I'm just going to start blogging myself and um yeah see see how that goes it, when you started blogging, and obviously, uh, you you affect a lot of different, a lot of people, a lot of women. Uh, any criticisms or critiques of you? You know, like when you blog, like what are some of the what are some of the responses that you get? Some of the good ones, and maybe some of the ones yeah. that are critical of you. Yeah. So um, the um, overwhelming majority of, of comments. From um, from the blog and from um, and from my book have been people saying you know thank you for for putting it out there how how you know kind of exposing yourself and to say this is how I've really found it um, you know I get a lot of messages from mums that just say oh thank goodness it's not just me you know it's so reassuring to hear that other people find it testing too um, and that it's you know. Um, it's okay to, to admit to having days when, you know, you still absolutely love your children, but you, you don't particularly like how they've been behaving. Um, so all that, those kind of messages of solidarity are, are the best bit and the best comments. But every now and again, I think like with anything you, you put out on the internet, um, you know, I've come under a criticism uh, a handful of times from people who, who, I think their point is generally to say, you know, well, you don't sound very grateful for, you know, the children that you've got. Um, you know, if, if you're just spending all of your time moaning about how hard it is and how tired you are, um, do, you know, do you actually deserve to be a mum at all? Because, of course, there are lots of people who, um, who would give anything to have, um, to have two lovely children like I've got. So I think I have to always keep in mind that 
um, you know, not everybody likes to hear a whinge and a moan all the time and, uh, and that parenting um, is, you know, marvellous and, and magical as well. But the flip side of that is I still maintain that, you know, it's unhealthy to bottle up our feelings of worry and frustration and put on kind of a, a front that says everything's great all of the time. Um, because ultimately it's, it's not like that. Parenting like anything else is, you know, you have good days and bad days. It's like, it's like any other job. You know, you could have the job, the job of your absolute dreams and still have days when you think, I, I don't fancy doing this today. It's too much like hard work. And, and parenting is no different. The rewards are great, but sometimes it, it's hard. So, yeah, the criticism tends to be from people who I think probably haven't read very much of what I've written and don't get the whole essence of, of balance, which is me saying, oh, my goodness, I couldn't love my kids anymore, but sometimes they drive me to the depths of despair. Um, and, yeah, I think there's, a, there's a, sometimes a tone of, well, don't you sound a little bit ungrateful? And, um, and, you know, you, you can't please everyone, can you? You can't please everybody all of the time. No, you can't. <laughs> and uh, I guess you shouldn't, don't even try to do that, right? Uh, well, as you say, yeah. your book is not a parenting manual. It's real life, and that's what real life is. I think one of the things, and I want you to talk about this, is a slummy mummy. What's a slummy mummy? <laughs> uh, apparently I'm a slum- apparently I'm a slummy mummy according to the um the, the mail online uh, or daily mail newspaper uh, over here um I think a slummy mummy is is perceived as uh, as being um somebody who perhaps by the media or in films or what have you who's not doing a particularly um good job it's not the job you had you know if you, if you had if you, if you put parenting kind of on paper and it was, you know, you'd be good at cooking and you'd be good at cleaning and you'd be this, that and the other. And a slummy mummy is somebody that, I guess, takes shortcuts and, um, and, and doesn't have such high standards. So um, I've been clubbed together with many other <laughs> parenting bloggers in, in newspapers and articles about the rise of the slummy mummy um, movement. And I'm able to laugh at that, but, you know, I suppose there's a part of me that's always like a little bit offended in thinking actually is, is that what people think of me because most of the time I do actually try quite hard um, to be a good mum so I'd like to think I'm not entirely slummy but um, yeah you can't really help other people's perceptions of you I guess. What about your support system as a slummy mummy? Do you have uh, other women uh, and I know that you do but who you, you support one another uh, and uh, is there a group of you who get together, who support each other, talking online, uh, besides just your, with your blog or obviously with your book, but just the, yeah. that you get together with? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So there are people in in kind of in my in my real life, that are real friends who I think we, we share similar attitudes towards parenting and, and and really value that being able to just be open and honest about how you're feeling. So there's support there. And there's also online support. Um, you know, quite quite soon after I started the blog, I set up an accompanying Facebook page, and I've now got over half a million Facebook followers, which is, you know, something I never um, anticipated having. But I've found that it's become almost like a bit of an online community, and there's a lot of support on there. Somebody might post and say, you know, they've had a bad day, or this has happened, and um, and you know, comments are coming back from other mums, sort of saying, we've all been there. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, tomorrow is a new day. So yeah, I'm I'm quite proud of that. In that, it feels like a supportive um, place that's been created. Well, if you have half a million, half a million—that's a lot of women. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. 
there's a need for your blog and a need for your books and uh, for the and for your approach and your ability to share the real stuff. So I, I think just in the fact that you have a half a million followers is uh, yeah. says it all. Yeah, and was a surprise to you. So how do you handle all of that? I mean, you really sort of. I mean, you become uh, uh, famous. It's, it's as a mom. odd. Uh, yeah, it's odd. I mean, I certainly don't feel like I've become famous, although I'm many different from when I from when I started out. But um, the logistical kind of managing um, social media accounts with that many followers is is hard. You know, it's hard. Um, I can no longer kind of reply to all the messages that I get or. or or read through all of the comments because I simply get too many. Whereas to start with, I would have sat and trawled through and yeah, replied to them all. So, um, so it's changed in that respect. But um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think um, it, it it you know without realizing it initially, I think what I was writing must have kind of tapped into something where people were saying, actually, this is what I needed to read. Um, you know, I like this. I'm going to continue to follow this. So um, which was good. I'm glad that they that they found. Um, me and that they found something that they could relate to but also I'm quite grateful because having for a long time thought that it was just me that was struggling with certain elements of parenting to have kind of 500,000 people say yeah no me too um, I, th- I don't know I feel validated somehow in thinking actually yeah um, you know they, they can call us slummy but um, there's, there's quite an army of us now so um, so yeah I think we'll, we'll stick together you know, what would you do, or or maybe not, uh, differently? Now that you, I mean, you've had the experience, you've had a lot of experience, you've got your two boys, um, you're, what, sort of in a toddler stage, and, a, and a beyond two and five, is that how old your boys are? Yeah, two and five, yeah, so Henry, um, Henry started um, school here, um, and, and yeah, and, and Jude is still very much in the, the toddler, the toddler stage, um, yeah. So what would you say to new moms? I mean, like you're very candid about your struggles and all that you go through on a continuing basis. So, but what would you say? Anything that you would actually, in terms of advice, would be like what maybe they could maybe change their attitude, do very specific. Do you do that different? Uh, maybe make just based on your experience, what would you uh, give as advice? Maybe in the very beginning for a new mom. I think um, I think I would have. Um, if, if I was kind of talking to myself as a, as a new mum, you know, take, thinking back to kind of how shell-shocked I was and how worried I was about everything, I think it would have been just to, to breathe a little bit more, to take a step back and think actually, um, no, you know, don't, don't feel like you, you're, you, it's only you that doesn't know what you're doing because actually a lot of people feel, feel like that and, um, and, and trust your gut instinct for things. Like we were saying, if something doesn't feel right, then don't then don't do it. You know they, they're your children as long and as long as you think you're doing what's best and you're following you know um, official guidelines for things that obviously you have to follow. But if there are you know differences of opinion, just just breathe a little, relax, and yeah, go go with your gut feeling. And also, I remember um, in the earliest days of um, of being a mum, finding it really frustrating when I would complain about something that you know the baby was doing or wasn't doing, and people would say, "Oh yes, but it's only a phase." And you would think, oh, I know it may only be a phase, but when you're living that phase and, and not sleeping and stuff, it's quite hard. But with the benefit of hindsight, that is that is so right, you know. Um, at the end of the day, if, if it's been a, a bit of a disastrous day, you can kind of draw a line under it and, and start again in the morning. Um, and, and tomorrow will, 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 will likely be a brighter day. So, yeah, 
just take every day as it comes as well. And, and, and don't be afraid to ask for support if you're struggling. There's no shame in saying, actually, I need some help. I, I think that actually indicates, you know, a real strength as a mum to say, guys, I could really um, use a bit of support here. You know, it, it means that you know that you're struggling and that ultimately you, you just want to do what's best for you and, and your baby or your toddler. So, yeah, never be afraid to uh, hold your hands up and say, actually, I, I, need, I need some help here. Yeah, I need help. And I think one of the things that was always helpful to me was that nothing does stay the same anyway. Even if you are stuck or the baby's stuck doing something that you don't want he or she to be doing, you know, someday they will be in kindergarten. They're not always going to be an infant. Things do change. By the time they get to high school, they will sleep through the night, maybe. And or and so sort of keeping that in mind, I find, is, was always very helpful that it it will things will progress. Um, yeah. And yeah, and I think uh, sometimes you can get stuck in a mindset. But I think one of the things your book is very, it's funny, it's hilarious, it's honest, it's candid, but a sense of humor wouldn't, I mean, I think that really can also pull you through. And when you're seeking support, maybe if you can just laugh about yourself and like what that that's very helpful or just maintain your sense of humor. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think um, I think you're right. I think having a sense of humour is so important because, um, like you were saying about you know when you were all, you were all poorly and you had to kind of crawl in to, to breastfeed the baby and um, and and when in you know months or years down the line you can look back and, and laugh at that. Um, I think that's so important. And at the time, I mean, there have been times where things have felt quite difficult, but you know, I've, I've, I've phoned up a girlfriend or my sister and said, look, this is what's happening. And we've ended up just laughing about something because sometimes, you know, kids naturally present the funniest and most ridiculous of situations. And, and sometimes I think if, if you didn't laugh, you'll probably just cry. So um, the laughter is always, um, is always preferable if, if you can manage it. And you can cry too. That's all right. <laughs> I mean, allow yourself those tears as well. It's okay. <laughs> Even when yeah, the kids no are shape. staring at you, why is mommy crying? It's sort of, I always yeah. remember the, you know, they're, they're looking at, at you and with your, you know, like you gave the example of the phone is in your hand, you're looking for the phone, but, uh, you know, and you're in tears and, and it, it's always this kind of wide eyed. They're so surprised to see, or at least my kids are always surprised to see me standing there in, in tears. Um, so. Yeah. Well, we only have a couple minutes left and your book is great. Your blog is great. The Unmommy Mom. Uh, you can buy it uh, on Amazon, bookstores everywhere, uh, and uh, we can go and uh, follow your blog. So uh, where, websites to go to, any other places we should go to get more information about you, your book, your blog? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the easiest way to find me is um, is on, on, on social media, so on um, Facebook, my page is on Mumsy Mum. Um, on Instagram and Twitter, it's the same, and all of those link to um, to my uh, blog page and um, details about where to buy the book as well. So, um, so yeah, great talking to you today. You sound like a oh, great I'm... mom to me. <laughs> <laughs> not not too slummy. I'm going to be fo- <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to be following you, and uh, uh, yeah, it's a it, it's it's. Um, a book that I think that all new moms should uh, go out and, and buy and enjoy. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Sarah Turner. Bless you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me is uh, award-winning author Lauren Wright, Ph.D. She's author of Behalf on behalf of the president, presidential spouses, and White House communication strategy today. But uh, political science uh, Lauren Wright recently wrote a piece for the Washington Post urging liberals to call out intolerance among conservatives. Uh, and I'm quoting her, maybe liberals are so PC because conservatives keep excusing bad behavior. She says, we'll never live up to the party of Lincoln if we don't call out intolerance. Uh, Dr. Wright will be teaching or has a teaching appointment in the Department of uh, Politics at Princeton University this coming fall. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you here. Uh, Lauren. Thanks, Catherine. Yep, and as we were just saying before the show, you were on, it's almost been a year, talking about your book last year. But we're going to be, today we're going to be talking about the article you wrote for the Washington Post. And, uh, because I think it's really important. I mean, this is something that we really need to be talking about. Conservatives keep excusing bad behavior. And, um, why do you think that is? I mean, what it, and it just seems to, it gets worse and worse. First of all, the bad behavior seems to be getting worse and worse. And we are talking about uh, the president, President Trump. Yes. And thank you so much for reading. I, I appreciate that. I've been uh, writing pieces for the Washington Post lately. It's kind of uh, fun for me to do something different than <laughs> writing books. But, um, but yes, I think this is a really important topic that I've been thinking about for a while. And, you know, I think that what is happening is Republicans, um, and I, of course, identified myself as a Republican in this piece, are 
really uh, excusing uh, behavior and calling it, um, when they're attacked, uh, a politically correct attack from the left. And I think that part of what's happening is our partisan divide is, uh, by some measures, growing. So people identify with their party uh, in such a powerful way that, you know, it, they defend them at all costs. And so that might be part of what you're talking about and noticing. Um, but, you know, I think really the point of the article is that when you say abhorrent things, uh, you, can't, you can't defend it at a, no matter what. <laughs> uh, you know, I, some things are inexcusable, and inexcusable is inex- inexcusable. Let's talk about some of those things, though, that you write about in in the article. What are the inexcusables that we are excusing? And and as you say, some some Republicans are excusing it, really just defending their political party, not necessarily taking a look, maybe, at, or honing in on what they are excusing. Well, what sparked this article in particular at this time, uh, Bill O'Reilly had just uh, made fun of Maxine Waters. Uh, she was giving a speech on the House floor, and he said uh, he was could not concentrate, or I wasn't listening to a thing she's saying because uh, I was distracted by her James Brown wig. And I think that you know immediately Republican commentators came to his defense, and they said people are so oversensitive, and this is just a joke, but. You know, there was a gender component to that joke that I don't think was discussed in addition to the racial component, and that's the fact that Bill O'Reilly was really saying that what Representative Waters was talking about was not worth listening to. He apologized for the wig joke, and he didn't apologize for the first part. Yeah, well, he, he was dismissing what she had to say. And yes, and this is, um, you know, a representative of the United States Congress. So, you know, I think a certain amount of respect is granted, of course, no matter what someone's saying. Let's take, and you open the, you start the article with, uh, you know, Donald Trump's presidential campaign, uh, you know, with, uh, I mean, he is the, the film that we've all seen many, many times when he's talking about, uh, you know, grabbing uh, women by their genitals and he has permission to do it because he's a famous person. Yep. I, you know, I think that was sort of the turning point where some Republicans started dropping off, but they came right back, and unfortunately, you know, the implicit statement there is that this is fine. Um, and, you know, I don't want to say that, that all Republicans that voted for Donald Trump think that that behavior is okay. People voted for a lot of different reasons, and I think that we shouldn't paint Trump voters in a certain way. But when this behavior... Um, accumulates as it did uh, on over the course of the Trump campaign and it sort of just gets swept to the side in the end I think that's unfortunate Um, you know for me a line was drawn much much earlier with Donald Trump but I think for uh, for a lot of women that this was particularly bad and of course you know 
when he was asked about his comments about women, he said that this is just politically correct. This is political correctness, and that's the problem with our country. And, uh, you know, that is absolutely not political correctness. It's just people calling out behavior that's absolutely inexcusable. Lauren, what does that do for us as a country? I mean, uh, when we begin to um, disregard this kind of behavior or accept it or defend it, because, uh, you know, Donald Trump, and I, and I have this discussion all the time, he was as transparent, I mean, very transparent. There was no, there were no secrets. I mean, this is how he behaved. This is who he is. He's an old man. He's going to be 71 years old. Uh, he's not a young guy. So, uh, all of this behavior, uh, verbal, everything, and, and, to, and everything that he's done was, was right out there. What does it say about us? And why is it not a good thing? Us as a country, not just this, the, you know, the Senate and the House of uh, Congress, but just we as a people that we accept this kind of behavior and we dismiss it. And, and, uh, what are the implications for that? What's our responsibility? Well, I, right. I think one factor is just the sheer volume of news stories that are happening. And that's always been the case with the Trump campaign and, presidency there you know the amount of incidents is so much and so high and it is important to cover them that naturally one incident is not uh given the attention perhaps that it deserves and the next story comes up and we move on to the next story so that's one thing that goes on but with that uh comes a sort of natural disregard for these things um and you know, I, I don't think that's good. I think that we need to be treating each other better, uh, not treating each other worse and saying that it's fine and uh, we can't have this amount of political correctness. Yeah, we. I think that that's an excuse. I mean, that political correctness um, that, you know, that it's we have to we're not really talking about political correctness. Aren't we talking about common decency and respect and uh, certainly for people who are in office or who are pre who's president of the United States and someone we can look up to and all of those kinds of things. I mean, we're really kind of passing it off as political correctness when it really has to do with ethics, morality, decency and, and respect. Absolutely. And, you know, I should say I was on an I was on another show recently, um, a conservative talk radio show, and um, some people were saying about my article that the problem with it was that, you know, Democrats behave badly, too, and I, uh, I did not call out Democrats. And that's, of course, true. This is not a Republican Party-specific problem, but as someone within the party, I think that it's important to call it out from within in addition to outside, because... That's sort of how it stops. And you're exactly right that, you know, this is about decency, respect, these basic, basic things. And, you know, the, the, the thing remains, Catherine, that there's, you know, it's not hard to go through life not being accused of sexual harassment. It's not. It's not hard to uh, go through life and uh, not say racist and sexist things, you know. Uh, this is something that millions of Americans do every single day. And, you know, I think people 
that are in the elite of our country, whether it be the media or politicians, uh, should be held to those basic standards. Yeah, what is our expectation if they're not held to those basic standards? What, uh, what are the expectations for the, the, the next generation or the generation now, young people now, if this is if uh, these are the way our leaders, as you say, both Republican and Democrat, just help, it just happens to be that our president is a Republican and, and he is who he is. But uh, how does that affect uh, the uh, our young people? Well, I think what's important that to kind remember of that, um, sure, Americans have uh, a very short political memory. So, um Typically, after a political scandal, um, we do talk about all of these things and uh, how it's affecting people and what it means that this happened and the people at the highest uh, positions of government are behaving in these ways. But then uh, we forgive and we forget, and I don't think that's necessarily bad. But, you know, young Americans watching these things, uh, you know, may not remember in a very short amount of time because there's just so much going on in the political world right now. So uh, these things don't rank as high on the collective consciousness as perhaps they may have in the past. But you know what I think, because you say there is so much of it out there, this kind of behavior and rhetoric and uh, demeaning, and uh, I think that what really does happen is it maybe. The, the young Americans, the younger people maybe do forgive or forget or don't remember consciously, but I think it does get into the psyche. It, it, it does over time because there's so much of it and that, that that's not a good thing, that this becomes acceptable and it's just sort of embedded in our psyche, even if you can't, even if you're not aware of it, or uh, but it, it, it does do that and that that's not a good, th- I mean, that that certainly can't be a good thing for us, for our country, for the next generation of leaders. I agree. And, um, you know, sometimes there are consequences and sometimes there are not. Uh, For a lot of these political scandals, again, on both sides of the aisle, uh, people lose their seat in office or, um, you know, they're sort of relegated to a secondary status for a few years until they can run for something else again. Um, In President Trump's case in the campaign, there weren't any consequences. Uh, So I think that Sometimes we respond in uh, an appropriate way. Sometimes there are a lot of other factors at play, as was the case in the 2016 election. Uh, But, you know, I think that when things are routinely excused, you're right, it's uh, it's not a good example. And um, I think we need to pay a lot of attention to these things. It's not just, oh, you know, this person made a joke. And why are we focusing on that? Why are we so hard on people? You know, these issues are really, really important, to me at least. Well, as an example, what if our teachers in school or a principal behave this way? I don't think that's acceptable. And I think probably in those situations, they would be fired. Probably. Um, that's, a, that's a good example. So for some reason, when we get into this political arena, we're much more accepting of this, these kinds of, of behaviors. Uh, uh, sure. For and what, it's true yeah, that for whatever you know, politicians do have 
a spotlight on them. They do get a lot more um, scrutinizing, more media attention than the average person does. But I think that when people see these people with so much power, so many resources, um, sort of getting away with it, they say, well, how come... uh, how come the average person can't get away with that, but these people are? I think that's frustrating. So what's our responsibility as voters, as citizens? Uh, what, do, what can we do? How can we have some kind of an influence so this, this behavior, it doesn't get better, it only gets worse unless we say, you know, first of all, that we have to be aware of it and make people aware of it, and then we have to do something, don't we? Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, liberals do a great job of, <laughs> of uh, talking about conservatives when they behave badly, of calling out that behavior and uh, vice versa. Um, you know, conservatives are the first to call out liberal bad behavior. But I think within um, both movements and within the Democratic and Republican Party, Republicans and Democrats need to call out their colleagues and uh, their fellow party members because, you know, if an argument comes from within and we're consistent in that, then I think that might strengthen these values that we're talking about. Uh, You know, it's not a partisan issue that you should be respectful to someone. So if we try to stick to that and, you know, this article is sort of, me doing my part uh, within the Republican Party, calling out bad Republican behavior, I think that we can get somewhere. Now, you're, I, I agree with you. Uh, you're going to Princeton in the fall. You're going to be teaching at Princeton? Yes. So you're going to be sitting there with some of the, 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 the brightest young students that we have. Um, is this something this obviously will be discussed in your classes? I don't think so, but of course, you know, things that you, that aren't within the curriculum always come up in a college classroom and that's the best part of universities, but I'm teaching the American presidency, uh, and executive branch power in the fall and then in the Spring in the policy school, I'll be teaching women in politics and political communication. So I bet in those classes we'll have a lot of discussions about these things. Um, but I don't bring my opinions into the classroom. I think that's really important. Um, my work is empirical. It's mostly quantitative, and it's important for me to be seen as an objective academic. But that doesn't mean that people don't have opinions and preferences. So I think it's important to separate the two, but that it's absolutely possible. Yeah, I was going to say, it would seem to me it would be a difficult thing to do, particularly maybe with this caliber of students, because I wouldn't—I would imagine all this stuff is going to come up. I mean, how could it not, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then your role in trying to do it as a professor as a moderator, but not allowing your own personal beliefs to come into play, um, it would seem to me that would be a diff- very difficult thing to do. You know, it, it really shouldn't be. And, um, you know, I think that it's unfortunate that we see so many people in academia with strong opinions that talk about those things in the classroom. I think we're a professor should always 
appear to be objective, even if they have opinions. Uh, they should always present all sides. And if you look at my writing, uh, not just my academic work, but you know my op-eds in The Hill and The Washington Post, um, Huffington Post, you'll see that you know I think it's possible to discuss strategy uh, without uh, siding with one candidate or another or with one party or another. It's, I think that the way, one way to get past this is to talk about the institutions of government, um, to talk about campaign strategy, to talk about what works and what doesn't, uh, to talk about policy and not frame these things uh, within the context of political opinion. I think there's a lot of ways to see past that. Um, I, I wouldn't disagree with you, but as a social worker, I'm just curious because when you are confronted with, and students are right, I mean, and I would assume that you will be, like when they start to uh, bring up some of these topics or they go after you, uh, do you have certain expectations about how, what maybe they're going to say and how you're going to respond? I mean, real specifics? Well, you know, I haven't been in that situation in my academic career Yet, I actually find that, you know, students are really respectful in general, but, you know, I think that it's important not to share your personal opinions in the classroom. I do. That's not why I'm there at Princeton. I'm there for my substantive academic knowledge, not to share, you know, what I think is wrong with our government or what's right with it. Um, and I, I do, I think that's extremely important. Um, and so despite the discomfort, I think that it's, it's important to strive for it, even if it's a lot easier to say, oh, this is what I think of that person. Um, that's really not relevant to the syllabus. That's not why students took the class. Um, they take the class because you're an expert in your field. And, um, you know, on the other side of that, Catherine, I think that, you know, the reason why I identified myself as a Republican in this article, and, you know, in addition, anyone can look up that I worked for the Meg Whitman campaign, that's public information. Um, but, you know, if you've been writing about politics long enough, even if you're an academic, you always get uh, the question of who you side with or who you voted for. And so I think it's important not to pretend that you don't have preferences, but I consider the classroom sort of a sacred environment, and I would never want to sway a student one way or another. I would really try not to. So th that's a different medium, and you have other mediums where you, well, for instance, this article in the Washington Post, yes. So, uh, but the classroom is not one place where you're going to do it. I'm interested, we only have a few more minutes, but... Um, Tell me about the, the, the course on, on women, the second, uh, the second semester, I guess it is, next year. Sure, yeah, gender and politics, I think, is an area that always gets a lot of interest. I took a lot of those classes um, as an undergraduate, uh, and um, I studied it, and it's always been an interest of mine um, when I was doing my doctoral work at Georgetown. And so uh, that class will look at uh, women's status over time and uh, women interacting with various 
political institutions in our country and how, you know, gender literature, gender scholarship can help us understand our political institutions. Can it help us understand campaigns better to look through this lens? Can it help us uh, understand uh, local government, state government, uh, presidential elections? So I'm really looking forward to that one. Well, anybody who's listening who's going to be taking your course, I imagine you're going to get a lot of stu- a lot of uh, students. How many kids do you have in the class? I don't know yet. They have to, they're <laughs> you know. still enrolling for the fall one, but I hope you I have- do get some. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you get a few. <laughs> What's the limit, I guess? <laughs> yeah, what- <laughs> it would be a waste if I didn't. That's true. <laughs> Um, yeah, which gets, which I am sure then you will, I would assume you'll be discussing your book on behalf of the president. Well, I will definitely discuss first ladies in the presidency class. I think it's a really, um, severely overlooked topic within the presidency and one that's central to understanding it. So what do you think about Melania Trump so far? Uh, last year, we didn't really, well, we obviously we didn't talk about it because we hadn't had the election yet. So, But now uh, we're in a different place. We have a few minutes left. What, what, what do you, well, I'm not going to, what, what do you, what's her role? What do you think her role is or what, that, oh, I'll stop with that. <laughs> what she's well, been doing, really what has she been doing? She's really changed the role a lot. And, um, you know, what she's doing is different than what we've seen in the past three administrations, which is what my book covers. Um, Really what we've seen over time is that first ladies are becoming more and more active in public. And one of the reasons for that is because they're such great assets to the administration. They're uh, sort of viewed as nonpartisan communicators. They're above uh, the Washington fray. They're outsiders. And uh, Mrs. Trump has really stayed very quiet. She has a smaller staff than her predecessors. Um, she has not traveled very much. She's not living at the White House yet. And so, you know, I think that her independence is something to be respected because, of course, this is not, um, this is not an elected position. It's not an appointed position. There's no institutional power behind the First Lady's office. Uh, but by staying away, she's really denying the White House a lot of opportunities that come with having a first lady. So I think that's really interesting. Why do you think she's doing that? I mean, I know well, one of the things yeah. she's saying. What? So go ahead, Catherine. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say there. one of the, you know, what, what we hear, or at least hear from the press, is that, you know, she's staying away because she's wanted her son uh, to graduate from school. And then when she does, that she's going to be in Washington um, and then me, I assume, or be more involved. I, I don't know if that's going to be the case or not, or that's the real reason why she stays away from Washington. I mean, I take her at her word. Um, I think that, you know, all parents can identify with wanting to do what's best for their children. I think that's something a lot of people can relate to, but it's very expensive to have her in New York. Um, you know, people are watching just the amount of money that it's taking to provide all of the Trump family members security detail around the clock and the various properties and all of the traveling. Uh, but, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try to sort of analyze her from a personal standpoint. I don't know Melania Trump. Um, but, you know, I, I do agree with you that we'll have to see what happens when she moves. I don't know if there'll be a big uptick. What I normally tell people is 
however much spouses participated on the campaign trail is a really good uh, it's a good indication sign of what's of going down. I, I, Lauren, right I hate now. to cut you. Yeah, I, I ahead, asked you the fine. question. <laughs> I hate to cut you off. I could keep on going, but I have to. We have to get off. And I do want to mention your book again uh, because we've been talking to Lauren Wright. Uh, her book is on behalf of the president: presidential spouses and White House communication strategies today. You can buy her book Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And you know, we have you have to come back on. We've got lots more to talk about. So thanks so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Catherine. Hopefully not another year before the next No, we won't. We won't wait another year. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.